Welcome No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Sarah Box, your host and founder of Strategic Vision Coaching. Today, my guest is Tara Bisbee. I'm excited for you to meet her. And in our pre-interview chat, I learned some other things about her besides what I knew from research that I think you're going to find really interesting. But as a little background for Tara, she's a leadership coach who specializes in challenging interpersonal relationships and how they impact organizations. So for anybody who's ever loved their work but had interpersonal issues trying to do your work, Tara's the gal for you who can help you navigate that. She has two master's degree, one in counseling psychology and one in education, and she's currently working on a new novel and memoir. Um, So that is a lot on anyone's plate, but then guess what? She likes storytelling and improv. So we're going to, I'm going to ask her some questions about that because it piques (laughs) my interest and I can see some interesting overlaps and things to help folks with. A couple of things I want to also share with you is that in addition to all of that, she is in the process of finishing her new book, which is a psychological spin on some of her back history. So we'll talk about that. And as someone who knows about success and making her way in the world, she's been self-supporting since she was 16 years old. So I think we have a lot to learn from Tara, and I'm excited to get started. So Tara, before we dive into all of that, can you share a little bit with who you work with in your leadership coaching side first? Like Sure. Are- um, thanks. Thanks for having me on today, Sarah. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to um, talk to your listeners and hopefully part of my journey can help them uh, with some insights or uh, some tools or uh, strategies. What I your, your question was really about what types of organizations I work with, and I don't pigeonhole any type of organization. I'm, I'm open to working with anyone. I've worked with small and large. I've worked with public and private, nonprofit. I've worked a lot with educational institutions since I have a lot of work background in there. And I've found that, uh, but overall, I tend to work with either certain departments that bring me in for a certain reason, and also working with the leadership or management team in certain areas, and then kind of expand from there. So it's very flexible, and I've worked with, like I said, um, all types of organizations and institutions from small to large. So it kind of runs the gamut. So thinking about those, the variety of people you've worked with, And then thinking after you've completed projects with them, are there any specific types of groups or it's not even a type of group, like a name of a group kind of thing, but more of an attitude or an interest level when they call you that you've seen makes or helps some groups be more successful than others in benefiting from your work? Um, Well, it kind of depends on the nature of what they're calling me about. Sometimes Uh, organizations are a little bit more open to starting with things like a 360 review process because although you're getting genuine feedback from a robust number of people about leaders or managers in your company, it's not kind of as threatening as like looking at abrasive leader work or coaching. Those types of calls tend to come when people are really desperate Uh, They don't know what to do. The problem has been going on for a very long time. And finally, somebody says, well, maybe we need to get some outside help. 
with this. We have more people leaving the company. We have more complaints coming in. And often if the abrasive uh, individual is at the top of the organization, of course, that makes it all the more intimidating. People are often afraid of retaliation or what's going to happen to them if they, you know, report it or talk about it. So when, when those situations come to me, it's often, you know, kind of they've been on a long journey with it already, but haven't had a successful way to to deal with it. So it just kind of depends on how organizations come to ask for help or what they're looking for initially. And often one thing leads to another. I mean, as I'm sure you know, with your business as well, you might start off with a 360 and then it comes out in the 360 that one particular vice president or something like that is getting a lot of comments about how abrasive you know, he or she is, and uh, people have difficulty talking with them or temper tantrums or other types of behaviors that are really impacting workers in the workplace. So then you can find yourself kind of, you know, morphing off into another trail where you need to follow up on that as well. So Tara, when that occurs, is that when you kind of shift in if they continue wanting to go down the path to correct or improve. Is that when you move into more of the leadership development versus the larger 360 or macro level looking at an organization? Well, the leadership, the development, usually the abrasive leader work is more, uh, it's one person that's kind of the issue. And so I have a different methodology of working with that. I do interview uh, coworkers and people to find out what exactly are the behaviors and then I take, this is kind of in a nutshell, you know, a very condensed version of it. And I take the feedback that I get from the coworkers on the one-on-one interviews. And then I present kind of the feedback without specifying it so that there's no individual link to any particular comment. And then I have a program that I work with that uh, leader in particular to work through some of those issues you know, one-on-one. The 360 tends to be you know, you might have feedback from 16 or 17 people and you might have a group of managers going through that. And I've seen, uh, I've done both ways of following up with the, with the 360s with both individual one-on-one coaching, which is certainly possible and productive. And then I've also done, um, some organizations have, have opted for maybe group coaching on those kinds of things. So it's a little less personal and specific to the individual but you can still get some worthwhile discussion and some development plans and things out of that in uh, in small groups. So I've se- I've seen it done both ways. All right. So let's dive in more to the individual leadership development piece. And when you think about someone who's not calling you for an organizational issue, but they say, I just need to figure out how to balance or figure out my priorities. And do you work on those types of things like that? those pull, the push pulls you when you're running an organization or, or solopreneur kind of organization? Yes, I, I definitely work with individuals who just either want help prioritizing or maybe with uh, getting a more balanced work life. Um, a lot of people, especially women, you know, they tend to take on so much in, in their family life, their work life, they organize the social calendar. They're trying to do a little something for themselves, like maybe get to a book club or a yoga class. And then, you know, their schedule just, it's, it's overwhelming. And so, you know, they want to be successful in every arena of their life. And so how can they try to do all of that without, without feeling like they have to be perfect in everything? So uh, it just depends on, um, 
what it is they want to work on. But I have a lot of experience. I've gone through Coach University training a number of years ago, and I work on both personal issues as well as uh, management-related issues. And I think that's kind of where some of my background and also my master's degree in, in counseling psychology comes in handy for, for issues like that. So say I'm your client and I am that person you just described. I'm like, going, oh my God, I'm calendaring so-and-so. I just had to cancel my own yoga class. My business needs me and all of this, and I don't want to miss opportunities. All of the things I can rationalize why I'm doing what I'm doing. Where would you start with me? Like what are one of the couple of the practical things you would help me do to basically what I would say, climb off the ledge get going in that direction. Right. So a couple of things we might do, we might want to look at one of those uh, wheels, which has all the aspects of of your life on it and kind of look at how and where it's out of balance. That can kind of give a really quick overview. Are you spending so much of your time in your business that you don't have enough time for personal care that you're, you know, not really taking care, you're not paying attention to your finances or your relationships um, are suffering or you feel like you've lost kind of all spiritual connection to what you're doing. So we kind of take an overview look, and that can give us a really quick quick and dirty glance at kind of where you're spending all of your time and where you really want to be spending more of your time. And then I think once it's a matter of kind of figuring out what are your true priorities right now, it's a couple of things. For example, when I, when I was working full-time in university life, I would put on my work calendar I would block off my workout times, uh, you know, so that I would try not to have any meetings during those times. Like I'm out of the office then, I can't do it. I'm actually at my exercise class during lunch hour. But, uh, you know, if you don't take time to block it off and and put your self-care on there and put your yoga on your calendar and put those things that you do for yourself on there, they end up just getting shoved to the back burner and eaten up by by all these other things that may become up as urgent, but they're not necessarily um, important. So the other reason why the self-care stuff is so important is that if you get drained and you have nothing left to give, you know, because you're giving, 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 putting out, putting out, and not filling up your tank again, then you can't really be there for other people in the way that you really want to be, whether it's your family relationships, you know, social relationships, um, partner or or, or people at work. So I think it's really important to prioritize putting yourself care and putting it on the calendar and then honoring that the calendar. Also getting some boundary setting skills, learning when to say no, cutting toxic people or things out of your life and just being, being willing sometimes to say, if you're the person that gets everything done all the time, you're the person that people go to to put one more thing on your plate because they know you're going to get it done, right? You're diligent, you're conscientious, you're going to do it all. They're going to come to ask, can you be on this committee? Can you be on that committee? And I found that I just uh, learned to say, no, actually, I can't take on any more committee work right now. I'm art, you know, I'm full. And, you know, they'll just go to the next person. They just want that person there to, you know, they need to get the committee full. They need to get a body in there or whatever. So at the end of the day, saying no really protects your space to put the time and energy into the things that have to be high priority for you and not let it get eaten up with all these other things that can just suck the time and the life out of you at the end of the day, aren't really going to do anything for you or make that much difference. So those are really, um, 
I would agree with you. Those are the kind of things that have made a difference for me as well. But I will say it's not easy to to say no to someone who's used to coming or you care about or they're a priority person. It takes practice in setting those boundaries. So when someone doesn't have the support of someone like you, a coach or a close person to say, just keep the keep doing what you're doing. It's all good. How do they get that kind of support or encouragement to not just go, oh, I'll get on my own stuff next week? Uh, Well, if they don't have, I mean, one thing that people can do if they don't have a coach or uh, any type of group that they belong to is just have an accountability buddy, you know, have one person maybe that that knows you well and you know them well and you can support each other and say, this is my goal. I'm really trying not to take on any extra work right now because I'm really focusing on X, Y, Z. And having somebody that you have a regular check-in with, well, how are you doing? Kind of trying to, helping to hold each other accountable and having someone to talk to about those things can be a really great support and it really doesn't take anybody more than somebody, you know, than a good close friend that is is willing to be honest with you and, you know, help try to hold you to what you've said you want to do and won't just cave in. <laughs> That's a very powerful thing to have. Someone who knows you and you know how you can rationalize and go, well, I had to, and they can look at you and go, okay, but that's not what you said you were going to do. And you right, know, right. they're not going to accept your excuses. They're just going to lovingly go, right. you're off track. So. Yes, that has to be your agreement. That, And that's why it's, it's helpful if somebody that knows you well, because it's easier to call BS on somebody that you know well and can trust. And they know you know that they're doing it in your own best interest. You know, it's not in a mean way. I mean, all, all your conversation has to be constructive. But yeah, it's a lot easier for somebody that kind of can see through that. <laughs> it is. And it's, but it also makes you more vulnerable to ask because you know they're going to just say, hey, hello, this is me over here. I know you. I know <laughs> yeah. you well. So, Tara, when I was looking at your background, I thought it was so interesting that you came from the world of higher education or you have a lot of experience there. You have other experience as well. And then I read in our, earlier communication, the premise for your new novel, which is coming out soon, you're in your final edits, which congratulations, that's a huge lift to be doing along with your business. But you talked about that being, and I mentioned in the promo about it, being a psychology professor who takes what he knows and kind of preys upon vulnerable women. So what was the inspiration for that story? And did that come out of your own background? Yes, it definitely, my background was the inspiration for that story. Most of my career has been in the fields of human resources, employee relations, labor relations. I've been an ombuds officer for university for seven years, and I've also been a Title IX coordinator in that field for about four years um, at a university. So I had the um, opportunity to see what kinds of challenges and what kinds of situations employees actually get themselves into. And I've kind of created, although this is a a fictional novel, it's based on things that I've seen uh, happen, you know, or or similar kinds of things, um, 
you know, taking different pieces from different cases, maybe, and kind of putting them together and, and fictionalizing them has been the inspiration for this book. Because a lot of people don't understand. I mean, the Me Too movement is very big right now. Most women have some sort of experience or knowledge with some type of, of sexual harassment. But what a lot of people don't understand is kind of the role of the Title IX coordinator on a college campus in terms of sexual misconduct and some of the things that, you know, professors and other employees become engaged in. And, you know, we see the headlines in the news all the time. People tend to think of institutions of higher learning as a, as a safer place. And by and large, I think it is. But there are still a lot of very bizarre stories that go on there behind the scenes. Well, take a, just to take a couple of minutes and talk more about it. When we have a label like Title IX coordinator, people go, oh. Yeah. Okay. But they don't go any deeper than that. So what does a Title IX coordinator do typically? What's their role? A Title IX coordinator is um, a neutral individual on a college campus who is, takes um, complaints and is responsible for investigating uh, sexual misconduct, all kinds of gender discrimination, harassment, retaliation. Most campuses, and I come from a very large public system in California, had a very extensive and thorough policy um, that you would follow on it. But you have to pay attention to both the complainant, who is the person accusing somebody, and the person who is accused, who is called the respondent, and make sure that they both receive due process, equal rights. So when you're conducting your investigation, you have to make sure you're not supposed to be biased in any direction, and you have to be thorough and well-reasoned, and you have to weigh what you learn in your investigation against the policy. And you're making a decision based on the preponderance of the evidence. The preponderance of the evidence is, is it more likely than not that this person accused of this allegation did the act or not, you know, violated the policy. It's different than a criminal investigation or a courtroom where it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, there's a different standard of evidence. Uh, A lot of people don't understand that also there's concurrent investigations going on at the same time. There's the campus administrative investigation that's going on. There may also be a parallel police or criminal process going on at the same time if it's an egregious act like an assault or, or something like that. And so you can have two parallel investigations with two different types of results uh, coming out of those. So this novel helps to kind of illuminate that world a little bit. Um, it involves a professor who lures his young undergraduate female students into illicit sexual encounters with him. And the protagonist um, is the Title IX coordinator on the campus. And she uh, has to try to figure out what's going on. And she gets first gets into a dating relationship with him herself, not knowing anything about it. He's a very good con artist, kind of a sociopathic kind of guy. And then she realizes that it's he's the accused person and has to investigate him. And so it's this whole story of how she has to reconcile all of that. Well, and it brings up issues from her own past where she's been drawn into an abusive relationship herself. So she has to kind of try to grapple with all of that and figure it out and uh, try to bring him to justice before he you know, continues to molest more students. Okay, so when's that going to be out? Because that sounds great. 
<laughs> I don't know yet. I, I haven't got an agent yet. I'll be um, finishing up my final final edits and then sending out query uh, letters to agents. So I am looking for uh, an agent. Once I get an agent, then I hope we'll, uh, I could have some more specific information on a release date for that. But the first, the, the next step for me after getting the final edits done is, is uh, trying to find an agent who wants to represent me to a publishing house. So I'm going to say, if there are any agents listening, reach out to Tara. Um, <laughs> and when the book is published, I want you back on to talk about it again. So, okay, super. Because a couple of things that are, is, there are many things you've said that are interesting to me, but to that, I want to ask you to draw a connection again. So you have the, your professor, your, your novelist professor in your novel, and then you talk about work relationships where there may be that explosive leader or person in control or power, right? So, but there may not be any sexual harassment, but it's the same power dynamic kind of thing about who has power. How do, how does that play out in, you know, because that plays out in HR in different ways, I'm assuming. So how does that play out in what you've seen in the workplace, various workplaces, the power dynamic and people's willingness to speak up or go to somebody like you if they have one in their organization to seek help? Um, Well, yeah, that is something that is a huge factor in a lot of people's decision to report. Uh, The higher up the person is in the organization, uh, that, like I mentioned before, you know, the example of a vice president, if a vice president is the person that, that is being abrasive or something like that, people are much, much less likely and much more cautious about reporting because they're um, afraid of retaliation. So it takes a lot of courage for a person to go in. And oftentimes, the other thing, people don't believe that that anything's going to be done or anything's happening. But what a lot of people don't know is there's stuff going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of stuff that's kept confidential. So the average person is not going to you know, necessarily see or be apprised of what's happening. So you know, every situation is different. In my role as ombuds officer, which I was at Cal State San Bernardino for seven years, an ombuds officer is an independent, neutral person that anybody who had a university-related issue could go and, and report a problem to. Now, the ombuds does not have the ability to change policy, you know, make decisions about, yes, I'm going to readmit you to the university or whatever, but uses influence to work with the system and work with the policies and work with the students and try to figure out resolutions to problems. So sometimes it's a matter of policy, but other times it's a matter of, you know, there's a lot of gray areas where you can't just say it's a hundred percent somebody's fault and zero percent. You know, there's usually some type of interaction or dynamic where there may be responsibility or a certain amount of culpability with a number of people. And so trying to find a right, the right resolution by following policy, doing what's right, being ethical, trying to bring all of those things together uh, is something that, a, that an ombuds officer would do. But uh, ombuds d- typically don't take complaints of sexual harassment. That is a different channel that usually needs to go through like a Title IX coordinator. And the, you don't have the option of ignoring those types of complaints. They all have to be taken seriously and, and looked into. So... That leads me to another question for you, because it seems to me that through your professional career, you have you have a lot of emotional intelligence as well as intelligence, you know, and education. 
And one of the things you said is that if you if people develop their resilience, discipline, integrity, and emotional intelligence skills, they can do just about anything. How do you come to that? What does that mean? Well, I mean, I just know that that's been part of my own journey. I've had to have a lot of resilience because of what I where I came from with a difficult childhood and being on my own and supporting myself since I was 16. I really didn't have the skills or capabilities. I didn't know anything about finances. I, I didn't have the support. I tried to like figure out everything on my own. And so eventually over time, just kind of figuring out, having resilience, being persistent, being goal-oriented, being focused, learning how to be disciplined about it uh, was the way that I could kind of climb out of the hole that I had um, grown up in getting my education. And so helping other people do those kinds of things as well as something I really enjoy doing. It's, it's a transformational experience. It's, it's developing these life changing skills and capabilities. It's, uh, you know, having integrity is so important because the character of who you are ultimately ends up driving, you know, everything about yourself. And if you're an undeveloped person or still have a lot of issues that you don't attend to, you're going to attract the like in terms of like partners and, and situations, you know? So if the sooner you can clean up your own situation, clear up your issues, develop some of these emotional intelligence skills, develop these good communication skills, it really allows you to accelerate your own development and to attract better opportunities higher level people, you know, more like-minded people into your life and, and, and around you. And so it kind of becomes a, a, a spiral, either an upward spiral or a downward spiral, kind of depending on which way you want to go. It is that, that reminds me of that saying that you are the average of the five, and some I've heard it be 10 people you spend the most time with, you know, so that you're either elevating yourself because you're around people who share growth or positive skills and values right. and skills, or you're not, you know, and it's, but it is a choice. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely a choice. I want to share with the listeners a couple of the things just as a recap before we start is, um, and while you're thinking about what you want to leave people thinking about is because you've shared a lot of important nuggets throughout our talk, you know, so one is that whole thing about not trying to be perfect and overloading our calendars and really looking holistically at our life and where we may be out of balance so we can focus on our true priorities. Um, That concept of calendaring our self-care because we can't show up like we want to if we don't protect and take care of ourselves first. We won't be there for anybody else. And that learning when to say no and cutting toxic people out is an important piece of that. And for folks who can't afford a coach or have a mentor in their lives, that it's easy enough to find an accountability buddy, someone who will hold you honest and meet regularly with you to check in on where you're going. And it's a bi-directional relationship because you do the same for them. And that persistence and being goal-oriented and discipline is a key path, but your integrity really is the glue that holds it together and how you show up. So with all of that, what parting words of wisdom would you give our listeners and how is the best way for them to find you so they can get you to help them 
Well, I guess one other uh, thing I'd like to throw out there is in your work, in your life, try to find things that you're, you're passionate about. If you can enjoy your work and be passionate about your work, then it's almost kind of like you, you get to have some fun. You get to do something you believe in. You get to spend time on something that you think is worthwhile and, and important. So as much as possible, uh, focus on the things that, that you're passionate about. And if you're doing a job right now because it's good money and you haven't been able to transition to a job that you love for money, then you can also you know, volunteer for an organization or something that you care a lot about, whether it's you know, rescue animals or whatever it may be, something that you're passionate about. And I also believe in having some type of creative outlet. And this is something that I kind of put on my own back burner for a long time. And it's something that I regret that I didn't stay, stay up with my creativity, with my writing. Uh, in the last couple of years, I came back to theater in a way, um, started taking some improv, joined an improv crew, had the most fun. It's so freeing and it's something self-expressive something that you just enjoy doing that's totally different than maybe everything else that you do, but just gives you a certain joy and a certain uh, freedom uh, to express yourself. I, I really think that's a healthy thing for everyone to have. And it's something that we often, again, it's one of those things that we don't count as important or pay, or pay attention to. But um, I regret that I kind of put that on the back burner for as long as I did. And I'm very happy to be back fully engaged in some creative um, pursuits because I, I, I really love it. And it brings out a part of me that just in the serious workaday, real world, work life uh, doesn't, doesn't come out so much, you know. So tell me when you're performing improv. I'd love to see you uh, in person. <laughs> uh, well, I, that was where, when I lived in San Luis, I had an improv crew. I have not found one here yet. So uh, I have the idea of uh, trying to start maybe a storytelling event, but I've had so much on my plate in the last nine months. Um, I have not uh, gotten to that yet. So that may be coming in the future, but oh. uh, I am focusing a lot on my writing right now. I just had a short story accepted. Uh, for a publication that'll come out in the Scarlet Leaf Review and their online um, edition in December. So I'm very excited about that as well. Well, I'm excited to share you. I am going to ask you if you'd be willing to come back once you're ready to release your book so people know they can get it. Um, Because first of all, I know a lot of my listeners are in Southern California. So that whole link to your past will be interesting to them. They're going to try and figure out who are the people involved. But um, I also think the (laughs) premise of the story is great. So Tara, thank you so much for your time. And for listeners, we will have links to Tara's social media and how to reach her in the notes. And I encourage you to reach out to her because her background and skills are the thing that will help you level up, get through things, and improve your own leadership skills wherever you are within an organization. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.